This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Thank you, Dana. All right. Uh, before I start, let me just say how like, absolutely encouraging it is uh, as Chad is making all these announcements and he's like mentioning this name and that name. It is just so encouraging to me how many of you are involved and the different things that we're doing as a church. So thank you. Um, and I hope you all will take advantage of some of these opportunities. All right, so uh, we get to talk about Antichrist today. Awesome. Woohoo! All right, let's, uh, let me pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is uh, living, active, that it is, uh, you yourself say that your word is like a sword that is able to penetrate uh, to the very core of who we are. And, uh, and Lord, we come to passages like this that has uh, uh, concepts that are, that are um, challenging to, to try to understand completely. And so we need your help. We need your help to understand them, but we need your help to see how they affect the way that we live our lives today. And so we ask that you do that, and we trust that you will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so John is uh, moving along in his letter, and he's talking about, he's writing to churches in modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor, uh, and he is trying to explain to them, remind them of the reality of who they are in Jesus, their belonging, and he's used words like fellowship. And now, in this part of the passage, he's, he's going to start emphasizing this word remain or abide. Now, what's really fascinating about that word is just how much he uses it. And we're going to talk about that in the third point of the sermon. The second thing that's been happening in the letter is kind of a subtext of the letter. Up until this point has been the reality that there are these uh, people, these false teachers that have shown up and they are in the process of spreading lies about who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus has done. They've been in the background 
up until this point in the, in the letter. And then all of a sudden now they're coming to the forefront and he uses this term called antichrist in order to describe who they are. So if you've grown up in the church, chances are that you have some notion in your mind about what antichrist means or who the antichrist is. Uh, and depending on how old you are, uh, you might have certain books, you know, late great planet Earth, anybody, uh, that, you know, will have informed your view of what uh, the Antichrist is all about. So what we're going to do uh, today, the first point is really, I'm just trying to give you some background. So the first point might feel a little luxury, and I don't want it to, but if it does, it's because you, I think it's important to have the background and kind of get situated on what we do know and how far we probably shouldn't go in understanding that. Then the second and third point, we're actually going to take that and then kind of begin to think, okay, like how does this, how does who the Antichrist is inform your, your life and my life today, uh, if at all? And I think it does. So we're going to look at that. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the presence of Antichrist, just in the passage, kind of how, that, how this concept shows up. Uh, then the power that, uh, I'm sorry, not the power, but the problem that Antichrist poses for John's original readers and for us, and that is deception. So, just, so you know where we're going to go. It's the, it's the idea of deception. And then finally, the power that John is saying we have in order to withstand the deception of Antichrist. Y'all with me? All right, so let's look at the presence. Now, in order to understand, we got to go back. You got a little history lesson here, okay? So the period of time leading up to, about two or 300 years leading up to the birth of Jesus is this period of time that scholars and historians call Second Temple Judaism. And it's called Second Temple Judaism because it's, the, it's, the, uh, it's during the Second Temple, right? So remember the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Second Temple is built. Uh, and so if, you, um, if you've read the Gospels, you know that you've got these groups of people called the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots. All of these movements come about during Second Temple Judaism. Uh, and so all of these movements then begin having like internal debates with each other about what the Old Testament teaches, what the Torah teaches, and how do we understand these things. So during this time, uh, what happens is these two ideas begin to get formulated. One idea that begins to get formulated is that there is going to be this political figure uh, this foreign political ruler that is going to come in and that this foreign political ruler is going to oppress the righteous. And the righteous for a second temple Jew is going to be Israel, right? So this foreign nation, this foreign ruler is going to come in and uh, will oppress the righteous, that is Israel. And then the second theme emerges, and that is this idea of a false prophet that is going to come in and is going to deceive the righteous, i.e. Israel, right? So destruction and deception, those are the two concepts you want to hold on to, right? Uh, so what ends up happening, and, and, oh, and this is really important, right? That Messiah is going to be the one that comes to counter the work of this political ruler and this false prophet. Okay, so that's really important. So these figures are the, the uh, opposite of Messiah, right? They're the anti-Messiahs, or if you know your Greek, 
right? They're the Antichrist because Christ means Messiah. So uh, over time, these figures end up kind of gelling into one. And by the time that the Jesus' disciples are writing, uh, they begin to talk about these two figures as one figure, one figure that will come, uh, but then also these other figures that are in the same vein as this one figure, and they use several different names. So John is the only person who actually uses the term antichrist. Uh, here in 1 John 2, and then in the second letter of John, I think it's verse 7, that he uses this particular term. But the concept shows up in four places of the New Testament, or four, kind of four iterations of it. First, you have in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus is giving a teaching that's known as the uh, Olivet Discourse. It's this teaching where he's talking about the end. And there he says that false Christs, so it's multiple figures, false Christs are going to come and these false Christs will come from outside of the church and they will deceive the church. Okay? Uh, so here you have this false prophet motif the deception motif is being picked up by the disciples from figures that are coming from outside of the church. Then in 2 Thessalonians 2, you have this other figure who is known as the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness is a political figure, so that's the destruction motif. Uh, this man of lawlessness is going to come, actually, that's from, sorry, man of lawlessness is both destruction and deception. The man of lawlessness comes from outside of the church. It's one person, not multiple people. And the man of lawlessness is going to come and both deceive and destroy the church. Then in the, in the letters of John, where we happen to be, you have this figure and his, the name there is called Antichrist. But here it's not one person, it's a group of people and their primary thing is going to be deception. But really interestingly, in difference with all of the other, with the other three, here in 1 John, antichrists are coming from within the church. It's kind of a fascinating iteration of the development of the theme, right? And then finally in the book of Revelation, chapters 12 and 13, you have a figure known as the beast that comes from the sea. Uh, and the beast that comes from the sea is primarily political, primarily the destruction theme. And this figure is coming from outside of the church seeking to destroy the church. Wow. Right? Uh, so what you have is these four kind of themes are all different iterations of who Antichrist is. So here's, what, here's how we can combine all of this teaching into two salient kind of features to help us move forward. First of all, there is going to be, there, there, so yeah, so there, okay. So scripture teaches that there is a figure, let me put it this way. Scripture teaches that there is a figure that is the capital A Antichrist and this figure will come some point before the second coming of Jesus. Some Christians believe that figure has already happened in the past. Some figures have wrestled with uh, that figure being sometime in the present. And some believe that this will be an individual that will come at some point in the future. Uh, and, and so we got to be really careful because if you just do a quick survey of church history, you see how many times Christians have gotten this wrong. Okay, so let me just give you a quick overview, right? Uh, the Roman emperors Caligula and Nero 
were both accused of being antichrist. Various popes and various Reformation leaders were accused of being antichrists. Different religious groups, such as the Jews and Muslims, have been accused of being antichrist. Different political leaders have been accused of uh, being antichrist, Napoleon and Hitler. But even as recently and as our own day, President Obama and President Trump have both been accused of being antichrist. Uh, and certain uh, uh, geopolitical nation states have been accused of being antichrist Soviet Union, for example. Again, little nod to late great planet Earth. So, um, so and, and I haven't read this book, but I, I stumbled in all of my antichrist research this week uh, on this really interesting thesis that a scholar, a history of religion scholar wrote a book called Naming the Antichrist. And the basic premise of his book is that there's this idiosyncrasy, this kind of weird quirk of American Christianity that American Christians like to name their enemies as antichrist. That we kind of excel in that iteration of the use of the term antichrist. And you know when you stop it, and he's going all the way back to like colonial American history and seeing like this has been a feature of American Christianity since, you know, the time of colonial America. And it's fascinating having moved from England and he, he, some of the names that were mentioned in the, in the brief, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. These people, like the founder of Rhode Island, Roger Williams was the Antichrist, uh, according to the Puritans in, Mass, in Boston. Um, so, so that gives you a sense of like the, the caution that we need to have with naming somebody the capital A Antichrist. Right, because we've gotten it wrong a lot. We know that this figure, there's there's something true about what this figure, who this figure will be. Uh, there are things that Scripture teaches us about it. We've got to be really reticent to say, "Oh, that person is the capital A Antichrist." The second part of the theme is that there are both in Jesus's teaching in the Gospels and in uh, in John's teaching and his letters that there will be what I will call little a antichrists, right? Not the antichrist, but people who in this, in this kind of spirit are seeking primarily to do the work of deception. Now, why is this important for us to even take time? First of all, because it's important to have a sense of what the Bible does and doesn't teach about antichrist. But secondly, because it's important for us to recognize that the problem has not gone away. The problem of deception and that leads us to our next point uh, where we begin to see the problem of Antichrist. What you see here, and this is what we believe, right, is that there is real evil in the world. Uh, Satan is the personification of that evil. Uh, and that one of the things that we're told about him is that he is a liar. He is the father of lies. And so the, the, uh, the, the creatures, the demons, the Antichrist, those things that are in allegiance with the devil, the work that they do is in part a work of deception to the church. And this is what we read in verse 22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah. Uh, such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. So John is here telling us uh, that, that there is this, this contrast between truth and lies. One of the really interesting things about John, I've talked several times, right, about John's kind of circular way that he, he argues. One of the other interesting features of John is that he's always making contrasts, right? Walk in the light because you're no longer in the darkness. 
love because you're not allowed to hate. Uh, have fellowship with us, don't be disassociated from us. And we're going to see here in a second, abide, you know, because others have not abide. But here, hold on to the truth. You have the truth, remain in the truth, don't have anything to do with lies. So John works in this very, um, you know, kind of two-mode, dualistic is what some scholars have called it, kind of frame of like saying, hey, it's this, not that. It's this, not that. Now, why is this important for us? Like, why, why is it important for us to have a concept of the reality that there's this thing called Antichrist, these, these people called little A Antichrist, big A Antichrist, and that one of the primary ways that they're going to work against God and against his church is deception? Because we live in a day and age where the idea of objective truth is completely rejected by our society. Right? We live in a day and age where we swim in waters of relative truth, right? You're, what's true for you is great, and what's true for me is great, and we can have these two competing truth claims and both believe them, and that's okay. Now, we're not very consistent in that, but uh, that is kind of the general teaching that you will hear today. I was having a conversation. I, was, you know, I, I, I take Uber a fair amount, and I was having a conversation with an Uber driver uh, who is a quasi-practicing Muslim, and, uh, and we're having this back and forth, and he's like, oh, you know, Christianity and Islam, they're basically the same. I was like, well, actually, Christianity and Islam have got some differences, and, you know, we ended up having a, a brief conversation about that. Um, so, so this is an important thing for us because we have to recognize that, uh, that we, we live in a world where one of the primary ways that we face deception is by the erosion of the idea that there is such a thing as objective truth, that there are things that are true regardless of whether we want them to be true or not. Now, here's the thing, right, that as we confront this, we, we confront it from two different angles at least. For some of us, the challenge here is going to be to uh, come to the point that we say, okay, yeah, I, there is such a thing as truth. Um, and, and for those of us who find ourselves in that position, uh, a helpful place to consider would be the idea of moral obligations. So moral obligation is this idea that regardless of uh, your, our feelings, the cultures that we're in, or our particular interests, that there are certain things that are true, right? So let's take an easy one, human rights, right? It, in the West, at least, the concept of human rights is almost universally held. If you don't believe in human rights, you really are in the minority position, like this massively minority position, and you have no hearing, really, in our day and age, right? Everybody agrees that human beings have basic rights. That is an absolutely new way of thinking in the history of mankind. That is not how our ancestors thought about people. The powerful had rights to take over the weak. Men had rights to treat women poorly. Strong nations had rights to take over weak nations. But the idea of universal human rights, the idea that a political body would make a declaration of universal human rights, like that is just absolutely foreign to our ancestors. 
And you might say, okay, well, whatever, Omar, look, we just, we're smarter than they are now. We've evolved. We're more enlightened now. Uh, okay, fine, but where does the concept even sh come from? Like, wh where on earth would you even, like, I'm telling you, like, they would not have thought this way, right? Where on earth would they even get the idea that such a thing as human rights ought to even be on the table? And the answer is, I've heard somebody say, right, the answer is Christianity, right? Christian and non-Christians, historians, scholars of the sociology of religion will universally tell you that the concept of human rights emerges from at least one central teaching of Christianity that Christianity claims as objective truth. It's not deniable. And it is that men and women are made in the image of God. Right? The fact that you bear God's image, that you are not there, that you, that you are God's image, that that is fundamental to your identity as a human, is the seed from which the idea of universal human rights emerges. Without the objective truth of Christianity, we would not have human rights as a concept today. Right? That is, emerges from Christian faith. And so here's the reality, that all of us, especially those of us that are coming from a position that says, like, I don't know if objective truth is a thing. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't say that in a, in, a, in a disparaging way. Like, I understand that that is, people firmly believe that there's no such thing as objective truth. I would, call, I would ask you to consider that there are certain things that we hold as moral obligations to people regardless of their culture, regardless of their feelings, regardless of their background and their interests. Uh, and that those things, if we dig a little bit deeper, we recognize, that, man, a lot of that stuff is born out of the reality of objective truth. Now, on the other hand, there are those of us who would say, yeah, like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, and this is going to be true of probably all the monotheistic religions, right? Like, yeah, I, I believe in, uh, in, in some things or maybe many things that are objectively true, regardless of what it is that I have my personal preferences. Uh, and this would certainly be where I land. This would be myself. I would include myself in this. Uh, where, where we believe that there are things that are true and that we have to order our lives around those truth statements, right? So I believe that we should be ordering our life around the truth statement that women and men are made in the image of God. And so therefore, there are certain implications that flow from that, right? I, I absolutely believe that that's what we should do. Um, but here's the thing, that, that there are, in the same way that, that um, the antichrists, the devil, are seeking to deceive, right? That one of the deceptions is to simply reject the concept of truth altogether. But another way in which deception happens is by just, yeah, tweaking it a little bit. Right? And you begin to tweak it a little bit, and what ends up happening with those little tweaks is you begin to very, very, very off. Right? I was, uh, uh, there's a guy who's a Marine at our church, uh, moved uh, away a few months ago, and he took me and my sons up on a plane. It was super fun. And, and we were on the plane, and he said he was explaining to me how being off just a few degrees from the flight pattern that you're supposed to have, just being a few degrees off could mean the difference between showing up in Atlanta or New York. For those of you that are not familiar with the geography of the East Coast, they're really far away from each other, okay? Maybe I should go in the other direction. My East Coast bias showing up here, okay? Um, 
So what are, what are the perversions, what are the ways in which we see these tweaks that end up driving us in ways that really like begin to erode, like actually begin when you, when you follow the thread all the way through, they actually end up doing what is happening here, right? That they're questioning who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus has done. Uh, let me just give you a few as examples of what they are. There are perversions of Christianity that teach that Jesus is just one way among many ways that lead some people, that lead people to some kind of blissful afterlife. Uh, there are perversions of Christianity that distort the scriptures teaching about money and prosperity. We call that the prosperity gospel, right? There are perversions of Christianity that distort scripture's teaching on sexuality, the teaching that uh, sex is for, sex is good, sex is meant to be enjoyed, but it is good and meant to be enjoyed within the context of marriage and that marriage is between one man and one woman. Uh, there are perversions of Christianity that distort uh, Jesus' teaching on how we treat others that lead us to things as misogyny, racism, and abuse. And we're seeing, we just happen to be in a moment right now where you've got, you know, uh, what's that documentary, uh, Shiny Happy People, that are exposing just how toxic those iterations of, dare I say, false Christianity are, Right? Uh, there are perversions of Christianity that seek to use political power as a way of enforcing certain Christian ideals over other people in ways that are unbiblical. And, and what you see, that's just a partial list. It's not an exhaustive list, right? But what you see in that list is that, that these deceptions are no respecter of culture, they're no respecter of political affiliation. They're no respecter of, uh, of these different kind of iterations, um, or social groups, right? That we are all capable of having these false views of what Christianity actually teaches, infiltrate our teaching, uh, infiltrate our understanding of the gospel, and that the, 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 the way that they will ultimately take us, the trajectories that they'll ultimately take us in are as far away as San Diego from Seattle uh, as they are from biblical Christianity to where they end up. Uh, so what have we seen? What we've seen so far, first point, second point, still got the third point. Hang with me, hang with me. Uh, first point, just introduction, like who, who is the Antichrist? And what we're seeing is that this, this concept is one of the main themes of this concept in Bible is the idea of deception. We hold on to that idea of deception and go, oh, man, that's a problem in our day. That's a problem that we still hold on to. That's the problem that John is exposing. What are the ways in which we deal with that problem? There's a lot of them. Part of it is that we live in a culture that has uh, relegated the concept of objective truth as a freak sideshow. Uh, and then secondly, for those of us that would hold on to the idea of objective truth, that there are still ways in which false ideas of what Christianity teaches infiltrate and then we end up in places that are ungodly and false gospels, okay? Now, what's the power to withstand? Oh, my goodness. So much here, but I want us to focus on one word in particular, uh, and that is the word remain or the word abide. Uh, it shows up, the word in the NIV, the word remain shows up, I think, five times in our passage 
Um, the problem is that it's not always translated in the, with the word remain. I think if you're using the ESV, it's the word abide. So I'll use those two words interchangeably. Uh, but the challenge that we have is that this word doesn't show up. It doesn't always get translated exactly the same. And so you have to do a little bit of digging in order to be able to see it. But this word is really important. John uses this word in the letters of John 23 times. In the gospel of John, it shows up 40, over 40 times, right? So when one author uses a word and the concept, and that's just, the, that's just when the word is used. That's not also when the concept is being, uh, being mentioned. So, for example, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. The word remain only shows up one time in that verse, but the concept is referred to twice. Right? So we're not even talking about those instances. It's just, hey, the word showed up over 60 times. That's important. Right? Uh, I, I started going down. I, I, I invested an hour and a half of my week in a futile attempt to get my Bible software to work for me, to go down and study this concept further, and, and it was a futile attempt. My software revolted against me. Uh, this is just a sample of, in John, of the things that we are invited to, what we are told we abide in. We abide in the Father and the Son. We abide in the Holy Spirit. We abide in God, and God is love, because, we abide in God and his love because God is love. We abide in the word of God, and I love this one, uh, we abide with Jesus and therefore we will be unashamed at the end because of our abiding in him. That's not an exhaustive list, mind you, right? There are, what, five there? Uh, there are many, many more. And this is just First John. So you can see that this is a really important concept for John. And what I think John is trying to teach us is that abiding in Jesus is what gives us the power to be able to withstand the lies and deceptions. Abiding in the word of God is what allows us to expose the perversions of Christianity. That abiding in the spirit is what helps us to see the truth of God's word and order our lives around those objective truth statements. That abiding with God is what will allow us to stand firm until the end. So abiding is what allows us to withstand antichrists. It's the gospel, right? Because the, the way that we abide, the way that we come into this abiding back and forth with Jesus, we abide in him, he abides with us. Will you abide in God the Father? He abides in us. We abide in the spirit, the spirit abides in us. We abide in the word of God, the word of God abides in us. It's this mutual abiding, this mutual indwelling, this mutual remaining in that gives you and I as followers of Jesus the ability to withstand uh, these false things. Now here's the, let's, let's land the plane, okay? Uh, so I'm gonna land the plane and what, and what I wanna submit to you and I wanna suggest to you is this. John is writing to this church because he is seeing these false things pop up. And I think partly it's just like, I want to make sure you see that. Uh, we need Johns in our lives. We need men and women who will, like John, come up to us and say, hey, that 
thing that you're saying, that belief that you're holding, are you sure that that is consistent with what we believe about who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus has done? Last week, I told you that one of the things I love about Harbor is that Harbor, you've got this diversity of people that come from different ages, different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, different political views, different cultural views, different ethnicities. And that is a beautiful thing, but it's only a beautiful thing if you take advantage of it, right? If you don't take advantage of it, it's just an interesting fact, right? It's when we press into and enjoy the fruit of that diversity that that diversity actually has the ability to be transformative. Uh, some of you may know, some of you may not know, I've done uh, over the last, in my previous job, I did a lot of work in the area of cultural intelligence. So I've studied it a lot, I've read about it a lot, I've done teaching on it. It's one of those like personal areas of interest for me. And, and what I've learned is that if you wanna develop your cultural intelligence, uh, you need people who are different from you who are willing to help you see what you cannot see. Uh, and I want to suggest to you that's the same principle applies here, right? That we need Johns who are able to see what we do not see in order to help us see what we do not see, in order to help us to see the perversions, the ways in which deceptions are coming in and the version of Christianity that we're holding on to might not actually be consistent with what the gospel teaches. Uh, and so I was talking about this with Kate. She's like, what are you preaching on on Sunday? I was like, well, and I started talking about my sermon. And she's like, you know, is it interesting? Uh, uh, so this, this point belongs to my wife. Um, she said, isn't it interesting that, you know, you, you can go online and you can find, like, really great content about Romans. Like, like you know, I mean, I, I think I'm a fairly decent teacher, right? But I guarantee you, you're going to find somebody better at teaching Romans than me. I promise you, right? So if the, if the goal of a Bible study, or let's talk about Sunday school, right? Sunday school, we talk about Bible studies helping us to engage the Bible. Sunday schools helping us to engage the Christian life. Cultural conversations helping us to engage in, in kind of different cultural issues. The fact of the matter is that you can, um, thank, thank you Google, right? Uh, thank you AI. You can find uh, resources that will probably do a better job of simply transferring information to you. The difference is that when we're doing it here, because there's that diversity, right, that when you go to a cultural conversation, uh, let's see, the last cultural conversation we had was uh, how we love our neighbor, right? And I sat with, with you. And we had a fantastic conversation, right, where, where we ended up just like, the, because we come from two different perspectives, I learned, right? Not from a book, learning from, I love learning from books. Um, but the relationship is what forms and shapes us. And so that's why we're like, hey, like be a part of these things. Not because we're looking to fill your calendar, but because there's an important formation that happens in relationship with other people. How many of you have heard the word deconstruction? Remember that word? That's one of those like, ah, deconstruction, right? Um, there is... Uh, let, let, me, let, me, let me push the envelope here with you a little bit, right? There are forms of deconstruction. For those of you that don't know what deconstruction is, deconstruction is this idea that you like begin to tear apart uh, beliefs that you've held 
um, and replace them with something else. Right? Now, uh, what John isn't asking his readers to do and what I'm suggesting that we have to do is what I'm going to call godly deconstruction. Right? What's the formula for godly deconstruction? It's questions plus abiding in Jesus equals deeper love for Jesus. And I tell you, I've had that happen in my life. I've had seasons in my life where, where I, like, Holy Spirit is just like, that is not my teaching. And I've had to, like, oh, I think I taught that. <laughs> and then I've had to, like, pull back and look at Scripture again and then kind of rebuild. I'm like, okay, uh, I see it differently now. And that is humbling and it is hard. But can I tell you what? That when you abide in Jesus, as you go through that process, my experience, the experience of the people that, that I know who have gone through similar things, the end result is a deeper love of Christ. Now, there's another type of deconstruction, right? There's a deconstruction that's a lot of questions, no abiding in Jesus, right? And that ends up with people walking away. And that's what we see the people here. That's what we see the Antichrist doing in 1 John, right? They've questioned who Jesus is. And so John says, they're no longer with us because they never belonged to us. They didn't belong, i.e. they hadn't abided. They hadn't had faith. They hadn't trusted Jesus. And so therefore, when the questions emerged, there was no firm foundation upon which for them to stand. There was no sense of belonging to Christ to help ground them in the questions. And so as a result, they ended up walking away. Now, I, now I, I know that we can have more nuance, but I'm already 35 minutes into what was supposed to be a less than 30-minute sermon. So, so if you want to have conversation about that, I welcome the conversation. Um, but here's, here's my main point, and, this, and we're really going to land now, okay? And it is this. We, as the church, have to be aware of the reality that deception is one of the primary tools that our enemy will use in order to undermine the work of Christ, in order to get us to question who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus came to do. And that that deception, that strategy of deception shows up in at least two ways. One is to get us to reject truth altogether, and the other is that we have truth and just sprinkle in little deviations. And in the same way that you can have a slight deviation that ends, makes you end up on the other side of the continent, slight deviations can get us to places that are really, really far away from the Christianity that we want to have. And so what's the re remedy? The re remedy is provided for you. Right? The gospel says that through faith in Christ, he is in you and you are in him. Now, there's work that we have to do, right? The work of abiding in God's word is a mutual work, right? God allows his word to germinate. God allows his word to bear fruit in our lives. But the reality is that we have to be in the word, right? It's not like just, you know, boom, the seed plants without the seed grows and there's no work done, right? We have to be engaged in God's word. We have to do the work of prayer and of meditation. All of these spiritual disciplines, worship, that help us to be rooted and grounded in that mutual abiding. 
But at the end of the day, it's the work of the gospel that allows us to abide in Jesus so that we can do that really disorienting work that at times forces us to go, oh, I think I might be wrong about this. And I need to go back to scripture to see what does scripture actually teach. And perhaps I've allowed other things to influence how I see this particular aspect of following Christ. It's not easy. It can be very disorienting. But if we're abiding in Christ as we go through that process, the end result will be a deeper love of Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. God in heaven, we ask that you would please help us to, uh, to rest in the abiding that you have provided for us. We ask that you would please help us uh, to rest in you as we also strive uh, to follow you. That even though these things can sound like they're at odds with each other, that they're not. That this is the tension that you call us to live in. Lord, we ask that you would please um, help us to see the ways in which deviations and... Um, distortions of Christianity and of your teaching have infiltrated how we see things. We ask, Lord, that you would please help us uh, to have the courage and boldness to be John to other people and that we would be open to having people serve in the role of John to us, whether that is in a Bible study or in a Sunday school class or in a cultural conversation or just uh, exchanging of dialogue over a cup of coffee that we would leverage and use the, the beautiful diversity that you have given us as a church, not just as an interesting fact that we can brag about, but something that we take advantage of in order to be your people. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.